The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And this evening we are uh, beginning the eighth part of our study of living for Jesus. And what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is about wisdom. Uh, We're talking about godly discernment. And these are just practical lessons about sanctification that can help us all to achieve the main goal of being a Christian and that is to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the messages that we just finished up, the last section on living in victory, I spoke about the problem of sin and how that we are to deal with sin so that it doesn't overrule our lives and reign it like reign over our lives like it used to do before we became Christians. And we understand this, I think, that no matter how long that you have been a Christian, you are going to experience struggles with sin. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote Romans chapter 7, he gave a self-portrait of his own struggles with sin. You read that chapter and you see the difficulty that he had overcoming sin. And, uh, but there was a way that he could do that, and it's taught here in the Scriptures as we continue to look at them. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article about uh, the Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. I'm kind of interested in him because Swaggart has kind of been resurrected. I don't know if you know who he is or not. Some of you do, I think. But he's been resurrected, and (laughs) he wasn't dead. I mean, his ministry has been resurrected. His uh, ministry has been resurrected to where he's on 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day every day, which tells you that the devil is alive and well. But on Sunday mornings, I get up in order to get my adrenaline flowing just a little bit uh, to see you know, to get charged up for Sunday morning, I tune in to see what the devil is doing. And so I I watch that, and uh, I see, you know, Swaggart bring out his little demons, and he has two of them particularly, one his son Donnie, and the other one his son, his uh, grandson Gabriel. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, they are his demons. And Donnie particularly, his son, is is really a loathsome character. You know, smarmy little guy. And uh, he's one of those people, I hate to say this about anybody, but somebody that I detest so much that it almost wrenches your guts when you see them and you hear them. Uh, It's not a hatred type of thing. It's just when you hear somebody just mutilate the gospel of Christ and the truth of of the Word of God, it really upsets you. And Donnie Swaggart is one of those who's at the top of the list. Now, you take Swaggart and that whole group, I think that they are just rank heretics, And to give an example of this, uh, Swaggart puts out a study Bible in which he puts his comments directly into the text of Scripture. Now, most of you that have a study Bible, you know that you'll see notes from in your study Bible at the bottom of the page, maybe at the side of the page, but Swaggart doesn't do that. Instead, he puts his comments right into the text, and get this, he prints them in red. Now, I know some of you have red-letter Bibles, and we can debate about whether that's a good practice or not. But you kind of get the picture here that Swaggart has his notes in red, puts them in the middle of the text as if what he has to say is on par with what God has to say. Now, we know that that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem for somebody to do that. 
Uh, Many times he even corrects the text of Scripture by saying, this is what this ought to say. And then, of course, he has his comments there. Now, his notes do include some very widely heretical teachings, but the reason that I brought that up is because the comment that I just made a moment ago, and that he puts comments, or he's made comments, about Romans chapter 7, in which he said that Paul could not stop sinning because he didn't understand the cross. Now, it's true that Paul couldn't stop sinning in one sense of the word, and that's because he had a sinful nature just like we have, and we can't completely overcome the sinful nature. But it's not true that Paul did not have victory over sin in his life, that he couldn't live without sin reigning over him. Now, interestingly, Swaggart claims that uh, God has revealed to him specifically the theology of the cross Things that the apostles themselves did not understand. They didn't know very much about the cross at all, according to him. But it's very, very strange that um, to say for a swagger to say, here's the problem with somebody who can't, uh, can't conquer sin, is that they don't understand the cross, when here is a man that not once, not twice, but at least three times has been caught consorting with prostitutes. Now, it makes you wonder if there's a guy who really understands the cross. Now, what I'm trying to tell you here is that Paul did very well understand the theology of the cross. He did understand what was accomplished by Christ's work on the cross. He, he talked about that extensively in Romans chapter 6, and we looked at that and we explained that in the last lessons. So it's not as if Paul comes to Romans chapter 7 and all of a sudden he just falls apart and now he doesn't know how to deal with the issue of sin that he couldn't keep sin from ruling his life. Now, my point in telling you that is that what we need is wisdom. We need discernment in telling what's truth and what is not truth. Who who is telling the truth about the Word of God? When do you see good doctrine and when is there bad doctrine? And the way that we come to understand this is as we progress in our knowledge of Scripture so that we can tell who is it that's telling the truth and who is not. Now, what I want to do in this series on wisdom is to deal with doctrinal discernment. We're going to talk about that, but that's not the first issue that we're going to deal with. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, and we'll talk about doctrinal discernment. But now, I want to talk to you about the wisdom to discern sin. That Christians need to know how to discern sin in their lives. Although I do believe that many Christians feign ignorance about what sin is. They really do understand it a lot better than they pretend to. And so you have Christians who say, well, I really didn't know that was wrong. I mean, I can't help this because I just didn't know. No, we know a lot of things that we claim that we don't know. Now, when we're looking at discernment, we're talking about overcoming sin. And to do that, we have to know what sin is. You have to be able to tell the difference between good and evil. Now, at a, at a very basic level, that's what discernment is. It's the difference to tell, uh, the, the ability to tell the difference or decide between right and wrong. And so that would include activities that you're involved with. It would include things that you want to think about. It includes friends that you have. It includes the habits that you have. And it even includes Things like when you hear me preach and you hear me talk about Swaggart or about Osteen or Joyce Meyer or whoever that I happen to have in the crosshairs at the moment, that you're, you're able to, to tell the difference. Uh, whoever's on my agenda for the day, I mean, discernment is what we're trying to figure out here. How do we decide what's right and what's wrong? So discernment 
in the Christian is basically the ability to think biblically, to think like the Bible tells us to think. And I want you to remember this, although I, I scarcely think that you can forget it after all these lessons that we've had on our subjects of sanctification here, that as we look into these things, we're always being led back to the Word of God. It's always taking us back to the Bible, and you can't think biblically unless you know the Bible. So the more time that you spend in God's Word, the more wisdom that you'll have, the more ability that you'll acquire to make good decisions, both morally and theologically. So everything that you do, everything that you hear, everything that you believe must be measured by the standard of God's Word. Now, often you hear that. We say that the Bible is our standard of faith and practice, and that is the same as saying that everything that you need for godly wisdom is found in the Bible. Now, let's look at our text here in Romans chapter 8. This is really uh, just a grand chapter. It's described in the New Schofield Bible in this way, and I think I'd just read this comment to you. If the epistle to the Romans may be likened to a great cathedral of Christian truth, then chapter 8 is the highest of the towering spires of that divine revelation. The grandeur of the theme is shown in the largeness of its references to God, the sweep of its revelation, which includes past, present, and future, from creation to eternity, the good news of its message about God's answer to sin's tyranny, its lovely and soul-sustaining homily on suffering, and its closing triumphant note on the security of the believer. Now, if you have a Schofield Bible, that's not found in the original uh, edition of the study notes of Schofield. So I don't know if Schofield actually wrote that or if one of the subsequent editors wrote that, but it really is a great comment, a very true comment. This is a great chapter, and it's very helpful to our understanding of the sovereignty of God. And in relation to the subject that we're going to talk about, it really shows us that born-again believers have the Holy Spirit in them that helps us to or teaches us and helps us to know what are the things of God. Now, we look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 5. It says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, as I was studying putting this sermon together, it just gave me another example of how the Holy Spirit can work in the mind of a preacher to, to prepare him for the message that's to be preached. On the morning that I was working on this particular sermon, I got up at 5 a.m., which is customary for me in order to, uh, to read and do what I need to do and think and study some before the household starts to stir. 
And the system that I use for reading the Bible is the Professor Horner system, where you have ten chapters that come from different areas of the Bible. It so happened that on this particular day, the reading was in Romans chapter 8. And I just finished Sunday morning, and I was preaching at that time, maybe it was the Sunday night sermon, that, that I was talking about, or in the sermon I said, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. And I know there are some of you that struggle with that uh, because carnal Christianity is one of the things that you assumed was correct because you've been told it so many times and preachers have said that. And uh, if you wonder why that subject has come up so much lately, it's because as we've been looking at these scriptures and studying living for Jesus, we've just been talking about the issue of what is a real Christian? How are you able to tell if a person is a real Christian? Do you know yourself if you are a real Christian? And so we, we've discussed saving faith and how that includes the element of volitional surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Now the problem that we have with much of today's evangelism is a lack of preaching on biblical repentance. And so what we also have is a gospel of reductionism in, where, where people believe in this lightning-quick evangelism and they don't see that sin is such a serious thing that it's the damnation of the soul and that very serious thing is very lightly touched on and people are called converts who are not actually converts because they've never done what the Bible requires and that is to repent of their sin. And so that still leaves or leaves people still living in their sin with, with no evidence at all that their salvation is real. And then on top of that, the, the, the lordship salvation is denied so that people are taught that they can be saved with no sense that Christ must rule them, with no sense they must surrender to their lordship over his lordship over their lives, and that without that, Christ will never bring them to the full fruition of their faith. Now, the excuse then for converts that don't live for Christ is to put them in a special category. And the category is carnal Christianity. They are just carnal Christians. These are people that are, that are saved. They said the prayer. They did that. But they're not yet up to par where there should be. And so they're left in a lower class of Christianity. They are carnal Christians. Now, they've been told that they're eternally secure because they did say that they believed. But they haven't yet been sanctified because they haven't surrendered to the Lord. And they may never surrender. And there's some who believe that, that a person can be a Christian and never his entire life surrender to the Lord so they could go their entire lives living in this state of carnality. I maintain that the Bible teaches that that is impossible. And I believe these verses in Romans chapter 8 show us it is impossible. Now, we, we've di discussed carnal Christianity, Christianity in relation to ending sin's dominion over us, that it's impossible for sin to reign over us because Christ has defeated sin at the cross. Romans chapter 6 tells us that, verse number 10, and this text tells us the same, that either the body is dead or it is alive. Either it's dead to sin or it is alive to Christ and it can't be both. And so if you are alive to Christ, there's no way that a Christian could be in a carnal state. Well, if you've studied your Bible very much, you know this seems to leave us with a problem because Paul said something very different. It looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if we look at that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 2 through 4, here Paul said, 
speaking to this Corinthian church, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, hitherto you were, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? And there we have our proof, proof text for carnal Christianity. This is where it's going to come back to. Almost invariably, we're going to end right here. And so what we have to do is to look very closely to see if those who believe in this thing called carnal Christianity are actually interpreting the Scripture rightly. Because if they are, Romans chapter 8 then becomes a great problem for us. So in these verses... Paul is not arguing for a state of carnality. He's not, he's not giving us a category of Christians of lesser Christianity as if there is a group of Christians that have not escaped the corruption of the flesh. I mean, all you need to do is to look at terms that are used in Scripture like regeneration and being born again. And that's enough to show you that the Holy Spirit gives us a new life, not a spruced up old life. We have a new life. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit in him to the fullest degree that he can be there. You're not waiting to get something else from the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in our study in fundamentals classes. We looked at the work of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian prevents sin from becoming a habit. And carnal Christianity says sin can be a perpetual habit. That you have people that are living in this carnality because what else would be a carnal Christian except someone who lives in sin? Now, if preachers had enough discernment to put Scripture together, they'd see their arguments are not sustainable on this. Uh, John explained carnal Christianity can't be true by what he said in 1 John 3, 8 and 9. He said, He that committed sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That's telling us that a Christian cannot exist in a perpetual state of carnality. And the reason that he can't is because he has the indwelling spirit. Now, we can look at that and we can argue about what does the seed mean there in verse number 9? Does that mean the spirit? Does that mean the word? Does that mean uh, the sinful or the new nature? And people argue about that. But it doesn't matter which one of those you choose because the outcome is exactly the same. Sin cannot be a habit of a person who is born of God. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is explaining there that sometimes Christians act carnally. When we sin, we are acting carnally. But sin is not an expression of the new nature. That's the outworking of the old nature. We act carnally at times, but we can't stay there. And so a convert can't be a real convert, as many deficient soul, winder, soul winners claim, if that person has never surrendered to the lordship of Christ. Because if they haven't, that makes them a carnal Christian. That's a person who keeps on sinning, someone who bears no fruit, and thus he shows no evidence of real saving faith. That's an impossibility. That can't happen because that defeats 1 John 3, verse 8. Christ, he said, came to destroy the works of the devil, not to be defeated by the devil. So our text here in Romans chapter 8 disproves carnal Christianity altogether. And we see that the word carnal is used here in this scripture as well. And what you see is a very clear pointed reference to the language of impossibility. He says... 
For to be carnally minded, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now there Paul is giving us a very clear distinction between flesh and spirit. Carnal, of course, means fleshly. And he says those who are carnal are not subject to God. And that means they cannot do the will of God. And I'd have to ask you, is there a Christian anywhere, someone who's a true believer in Christ, who cannot do the will of God? So obviously Paul is speaking here about lost people. The carnal man, the lost man, he has no capacity to do God's will, which is just another example that shows us that God must be sovereign in salvation. That no one can have a faith that arises out of dead flesh that has no capacity to please God. And so we ask then, is a person that's not yet saved, is he still in the flesh? Well, we know that he is. A person who's not saved is in the flesh, and thus he cannot please God. So the next question we ask, does faith please God? Well, of course faith pleases God. Then that tells us that something must have, been, have happened to that man before he believed. And what is that thing that happens? God brings him to life. God regenerates him so that he can believe. So he has to become, he has to have spiritual life in him before he can believe. And that's always the result of spiritual life. When a person is regenerated, he expresses repentance and faith. Now notice in verse number 8 that Paul says, For to be carnally minded is death. What does he mean by death? And some have lots of trouble defining that. They don't know the meaning of dead. Now whatever Paul means here, those that are carnal are dead. That's what he says. So I would suppose if you're a carnal Christian, you would be what? You'd be spiritually dead. Exactly right. If you have a carnal Christian, he's dead because carnality is death. Isn't that what Paul said? Well, that proves to us that Paul is showing us that carnal Christianity is a myth. Have you ever read a scripture that said that Christians are dead? Have you ever read one that said Christians are dead? Yeah, you have, actually. It says they are dead to sin. They're dead to sin. Exactly right. Carnal Christianity, according to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8, is a myth. He says that people that have the indwelling spirit are alive. They're not dead. The carnal person is still dead. So a carnal Christian is no Christian at all. What he is is a dead pretender to the faith. And that is a real problem because he is a victim of deficient soul winning. If he can use the excuse, I'm just carnal, that's why I don't serve the Lord. Now notice in verse number 9 that Paul gives the antithesis of this. He says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So are you saved? Are you saved? Does, does that mean the Spirit of God dwells in you? Well, if so, you're not in the flesh. And if you're not in the flesh, you can't be carnal. I don't really know how that can be any clearer to us. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you are a Christian, and all Christians have him, and thus none of them can be carnal Christians. So fleshly Christian, that is an oxymoron. That's something that we simply can't accept. So I wanted to tell you this, and I want you to understand this, because this is part of discerning what the Bible teaches. As I said earlier, some of you have heard carnal Christianity 
taught for so long that you just automatically believe that it's true. But what happens when you study the text? When you get down to look at this, where is the Scripture? Let me ask you this. Where can you find a Scripture that says that there is a class of guaranteed, eternally secure, fleshly Christians? Any text like that in the Bible? Eternally secure, fleshly Christians? So if you've ever taken comfort in this, well, I'm saved... I know I'm not serving the Lord. I'm not saved. I'm just carnal. That's exactly what the Bible warns that you shouldn't do. How many Christians take comfort in in eternal security because they're carnal Christians? That's an odd thing when the Bible says that what we are supposed to do is to constantly examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. So you're never going to prove that you're in the faith by saying, oh, well, I know I am because I'm a carnal Christian. doesn't make any sense at all. So this is what we call Bible, biblical discernment. Can you tell which doctrines are right? And can you tell which ones are wrong? So because somebody kept telling you something and they've told it to you over and over and it's the wrong thing, but they kept saying it, that doesn't make it right. What we have to do is we have to look at the Scriptures to find out the truth. And if that doesn't agree with what you've heard, throw out what you've heard. Throw that out. If you've been taught something that's not in the Word of God, throw it out. Because we're looking for biblical truth, not the preacher's truth. Now, what I've tried to do here, I've never wanted to be a preacher that's a substitute for the Lord. And so what we do is we just open up the Scriptures... And I want you to take everything that I say, compare it to the Bible, and I don't want to preach anything that is not historically correct Bible doctrine. Now, here's where we need to begin the text. We're going to be just a little bit later here getting out tonight, but this is where we need to begin the text. The ability to discern good from evil comes only by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, in verse 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh... Do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So there we see, the the carnal man, he always minds the flesh. But the spiritual man, the one who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, is always after the Spirit. And so you can see the difference here between Christianity and carnal Christianity. Those are two very different things. In fact, they're two things that never meet in the Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians... 2 verses 12 to 15 it says now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God which things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teacheth but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness unto him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned He that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Now, the Scripture is telling us that the Holy Spirit teaches truth, and the spiritual man, by what he learns from the Holy Spirit, is able to judge the truth. So, he does have the ability of correct discernment. He's been enabled by wisdom given by the Holy Spirit. And so here Paul tells us that the fleshly man, the carnal man, he's somebody who can't do that. He has no wisdom. He has no capability of doing this. He can't tell the difference, which also tells us there is no category of carnal Christianity. Now, regarding sin, it's true that there are some people that possess a sense of morality. 
Now, as we know, there's much immorality. It gets worse and worse every year. But there are still many moral people, and they recognize that uh, there are problems with moral failure. And so they're, they're not going to do some of the things that other people do. They've got some morality about them. We have a lot of happily married people in the world. A lot of happily married people that aren't Christians. These aren't people that are alley cats. They're not going to do like a lot of the world does. They're not going to run around sleeping with everybody, hopping from bed to bed like a bunch of wild animals. These are good moral people, but they're not necessarily tuned in to the full consequences of sin. Some of these people are religious, and they think that they can be better than what they are, and they try to do better than what they are, and they try to get God's approval on what they are by the good things that they do. And they they can very well understand this, that living like animals causes a problem. Those kinds of things will foster venereal disease. And they do tell us that venereal disease is on the rise today. I mean, that's a problem that's been around for centuries. Go back to the time of the Apostle Paul and Roman emperors. Much of the trouble and the cruelty that came out of that era was because Roman emperors' minds were ravaged with venereal disease. So we understand sin's consequences in that way. But discerning morality and discerning sin are not the same things. Now, they might travel the same path, and they often do, but they're not exactly the same thing. So a lost person who is moral, moral, he doesn't really recognize the consequences of sin. And even the religious person doesn't really know it all that well because he doesn't know that sin is a problem deeper than he's actually able to handle. The religious person thinks he can, so he tries to do better things. Or like a Roman Catholic, for instance, thinks that his sins will land him in purgatory for a long, long time, and he knows that much about it, but he doesn't really know how to discern sin because he thinks that he can solve that problem by doing better, by, by doing penance, and the priest gives him his penance. And yet the Bible teaches we can never be good enough to pay for the first sin. There's not one sin that we can pay for. So he doesn't really understand the real problem here, that sin affects the holiness of God. That's the issue that has to be dealt with. And the only way that issue can be fixed is by the perfect Son of God who becomes our righteousness. That's the thing that they miss. So in order to be a real Christian, you have to be discerning about sin, whereas sin in the Roman Catholic system really means nothing. A man goes to the priest for penance, he gets it fixed, then he goes out, he does the same thing again. So he goes back to the priest and gets it fixed again. Only real Christians can discern the difference between good and evil and the way that God sees it. But I have to tell you this, that becoming a Christian does not automatically mean that you know the difference between all forms of evil. For that, knowledge has to be increased. The Word of God has to be utilized. Study, listening to solid preaching, that's necessary for you to learn the difference between good and evil. And the Holy Spirit gives you the capability of knowing that difference. Lost people don't have that capability. The Holy Spirit has given it to you, but what you have to do is listen to the Holy Spirit as He speaks through the Word of God. And that's where we learn the difference. I don't want to be disparaging to other Christians, But I think that being raised in a Christian home with a father who was a theologian has given me a certain perspective, I think, on discernment. When I came to California 19 years ago, I became much more aware than I ever was about how much that people need to be taught. 
as Jordan says, people on this side of the country aren't quite all the way there yet, so we have to do some more teaching. But I came from a, a very sheltered environment. I, I came from Bible Belt, from very conservative people. There are more churchgoers where I came from. People knew what we were teaching. They could identify it. They had a better understanding of things. They understood moral concepts. And, and that's because we'd heard those things from the time that we were born. But I came out here and we find there are a lot of people that have never been to church before. A lot of people don't know the things that we're talking about. Here in California, church attendance is low. Um, many people are raised from their childhood. They've never actually visited a church. I can drive across my hometown and pass 50 churches on the way from one side to the other and then come back a different way and pass another 50. Here, I go across Santa Rosa. I might not see a church at all. And if I do see one, to put Christian on the door is a stretch. There's nothing Christian there at all. So one of the problems that I realized when I got here was that many things that I say from the pulpit and I just take for granted that people will understand, they don't understand. Sometimes it's the concepts, sometimes it's the vocabulary. And so I've had people say, well, what you really need to do is throw out all of those theological words. That's not the answer to this problem. If you don't know the Bible's vocabulary, learn it. That's what you need to do. Learn the Bible's vocabulary. Sometimes someone will call us at home. Recently, I uh, was stopped on the street by someone who was doing a survey and at the end of the survey, you know what they always do? They always have some demographic questions to ask you. They, you know, that helps them to figure out who you are, where you come from, that kind of thing. So they ask the demographic, uh, demographic questions. And one of those is about religion. Religion's almost a part of it, always a part of this. So they'll say things like, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Are you a Muslim or of some other faith? Or are you none of the above? And there is the category... That's the largest growing one in the United States. It's the none of the above. And the none of the above are the ones that have no religion at all, which means that they have a completely different morality than those in option one and two. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Now, we face that in our country, that there's this ever-widening gap. There's a great disparity between Christians and the rest of society. The morality is completely different. Now, it used to be, those of you that are from my generation, this is the way that it used to be, that Christians and non-Christians alike had pretty much the same sense of morality. Now, they didn't always live it, but they knew the difference. I mean, they were, we were agreed on what is right and what is wrong. And Christians now have done nothing to shrink the gap that exists there because instead of winning the world for Christ, we begin to adopt worldly views. We've just moved over where they are. You know, I think about this coming presidential election in 2016. I wonder if Christians are going to remember the moral atrocities that have been perpetrated by our president and by our Supreme Court in this, in this year or this past year. I wonder if people are going to remember that. Are they going to remember the wholesale sellout of the Democratic Party on moral issues? Or will Christians do this? Will they think about the economy? Are they going to worry about how stocks and bonds are doing? Are they going to worry about how high the minimum wage is or the next promise that the government gives us on what we can get for nothing? What are the choices going to be? How many people are going to try to choose some kind of a candidate that would bring us back to God on moral issues? 
Well, I'm afraid what's going to happen, the, the, the economy will trump it all again. As Brian said the other night, trump it all again. Uh, that, that looks like what's going to happen. But whether you're Republican or you're Democrat or you're outside of both of those, if we have a candidate for moral change, I can promise you this, he's not going to get a hearing. Very unlikely he's going to get a hearing. So what we will, we will do is we'll go back and we'll vote for the same ones again who promoted a homosexual agenda that championed abortion as if, if we didn't kill babies, that the world was going to come to an end. We're going to vote for them again. You know, on the same day that they released one of those Planned Parent videos about abortion, everybody seen some of those? On the very day that they released one of those new videos, there was an article in our paper that said, we need new laws to protect animals. So you kick a dog, you go to jail. You, you kill a baby, you get applauded for your courage for doing it. I saw something else that said that an abortion cost $400 and an adoption cost $40,000. So what is an abortion? It's just a matter of economics. It's economics. That's what this is all about. And how crazy is that, folks? Human life means nothing. And that's the morality that we're dealing with with the none of the aboves. And there's nothing godly about that at all. And most Christians are still worried about the economy instead of a godless president, a godless Congress, and a godless Supreme Court. So here's what we've got. There was a time, there was a time when there were certain things that you knew you would never expect that Christians would do. If a person said, I am a Christian, then you just automatically know. You've got a pretty good idea what that person is like. He's not going to do certain things because he's a Christian. I remember a time when you said you were a Christian, you weren't going to touch any alcohol. People knew that believers don't drink alcohol. They wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't touch it because they know Christians don't do those things. Do you remember the DVD that we passed out a couple of years ago in Santa Rosa? We passed out about 1,500 of those. And they had this great gospel presentation, a very good DVD. And there was a, a man on there that was a preacher. I didn't know him. I hadn't seen him before. And so I decided that I would look him up. I'd say, who is this guy? I mean, he's given a really a great uh, presentation of the gospel. So I think I'll find out more about him. So I looked him up, and I looked up the church website where he is the pastor, and here's what I found. Th this is the statement I found in his bio. Now, this is the pastor of the church, mind you. Bob and his wife, Gail, have been married since 1995 and have two sons and two daughters. In his spare time, he loves working out, watching the NFL, any game he can, and enjoying a cigar and a single malt scotch. That's on the church website. You know what I learned since then? That Bob ended up in multiple affairs with women in the church. Do you see the problem that we're talking about here? The gap between the world and Christianity is shrinking, and it's shrinking in the wrong direction. We're going their way. They're not coming over to the side of the Lord. Now, we're not talking so much here about outright heretics like we would with Jimmy Swaggart. We're not talking about that because here is a man on that video who believed in the doctrines of grace. He was preaching the doctrines of grace. And so he said, well, there's the problem with the doctrines of grace right there. That's what's wrong with all of you people that believe that. But do I need to remind you of 
a man like Jack Scopp, who was pastor of First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, who was sent to prison for 10 years for having sex with a minor in the church and transporting her across state lines. The problem that we have is a difference of morality. We need a return to a biblical morality. That's the problem that we're facing. So declining Christian morality comes to us because preachers are dirt poor about discernment. And so you see them drinking alcohol, and many today just say, well, you know, that's a part of Christian liberty. And so you have preachers at the pub, you have them at the pub throwing down a few beers as they discuss the Bible. Now what I'm trying to tell you is that calling yourself a Christian does not guarantee that you possess a certain morality. And I know that because I see it in our own church. I prefer to put my head in the sand sometimes. I don't have a Facebook account. But I hear things. I mean, I'm not uninformed. I hear things, and I know that there are people in the church that post their bad habits and filthy talk and all those kinds of things, which brings me back to our text, verse number 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So do you know what all this stuff looks like? It looks like that many don't have the Spirit of Christ. You're none of His, the Bible says. So you're not a carnal Christian. That's not your problem. You're not existing in this other state of carnal Christianity. You are not a Christian. That's the problem here. So we have people continually living in sin. Let's don't call them carnal Christians. Let's call them what the Bible calls them. Lost. That's what they are. Christians do not habitually live in sin. I'm not saying you can't fall into sin. I'm not saying you can't get into deep sin because you can, but you cannot stay there. A child of God will not stay there. The Word of God says that's not going to happen. There is no such thing as a person who is a Christian who lives in sin. Now, when you think about that, what, what criteria do we have to judge whether a person is actually a Christian? What does the Bible say to judge it by? <laughs> judge it by sin. What are they doing? How do they live? Does it look like they know God? If they don't, then you say, well, that's a lost person. Because saved persons act differently. So what do we need? We need to be called back to a biblical morality. We need to get back to the teachings of the Bible and see that Christ and the apostles were very strict about Christian behavior. And they said that Christians need wisdom, they need discernment, they need to stay away from evil. So here's our question. What do we do? How, how, how do we correct this thing? How, how do we tell the difference between right and wrong? Well, that day is gone we can expect, when we expect Christians just to know the difference. Because where we are, we're right back at the ignorance of the Corinthian society. There is immorality and there is immaturity. And this is what Paul said about it, going back to those verses. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? They're not carnal Christians. They're Christians acting carnally. And before he could get them to spiritual understanding, he had to deal with fleshly 
immorality. And so that's what we have to do. So what I'm trying to tell you right now is what we're going to do is go back to some very basic stuff. Because some in the church need to be treated as babes in Christ. They haven't yet learned these things. So we're going to go back to some very basic stuff. Now, in the, in the, in the meantime, we're going to spend time with difficult doctrines. We'll still do that. This is not an indictment against any particular person that's here. But we're going to go back to simple doctrines. So what we have here is just a reminder sermon. And this reminder sermon is done because I'm out of time. So this will serve as, a, as an introduction to the subject of discerning biblical wisdom. So we'll start with just some very easy concepts that will help us to get on the right footing about telling good from evil. Now one side's the moral, the other side's the doctrinal. Next week, we'll start there with the moral. And we'll have some questions for you to help you to determine how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Just some easy things. Come back next week and we'll talk about them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what we learn from it. I do pray for uh, Christians, members of our church, Lord, that if there's anyone hiding behind the attitude that, oh, well, I'm saved, They're, I'm just uh, living in sin because I'm a carnal Christian, and they take comfort in that. There's no comfort there at all. The Scripture says examine your faith, and that's what we want to do. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to examine our faith and see if we really are in the faith. Have we truly trusted Christ? Has a change been made in our lives? That's the thing that has to be figured out here. So Lord, help us to do that as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.